Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 31st of December, a man called Peter Pringle died at the age of 84. The name may be familiar to some of you. And I should point out here, in case you've already heard a lot about him, this is not primarily about Peter Pringle. I'm just giving you a lead into the story. People may have heard Joe Duffy did a a programme of Liveline dedicated to this whole thing. I've written a number of pieces about it and there's a lot of controversies around Mr. Pringle. If you haven't heard about him, just very brief background to show you where we're going. He was convicted in 1980 of capital murder of two Gardaí, John Morley and Henry Byrne. Along with two other men, he was sentenced to death, but this was soon commuted to 40 years imprisonment without parole. The other two had been captured near the scene of the murders outside Balladrine in County Mayo, and Pringle was apprehended 12 days later. In 1995, he was released after the Court of Appeal ruled his conviction unsafe. Now, there was a what people sometimes describe as a technicality involved in this, but I mean, th- these are safeguards that are there to ensure we have a proper system. Anyway, ordinarily what would have happened is that there would have been a retrial. And under the circumstances, there's I think it's fair to say there's every possibility he would have been found guilty again. However, his luck was in. It wasn't possible to advance that way because some crucial witnesses had died in the interim, so he was released. Soon after that, he met the woman who is the focus of our discussion today, Sonny Jacobs. Sonny had herself been on death row in the USA following the murder of two police officers in Florida in 1976. Her co-accused and boyfriend at the time was executed in the state in 1990, but as a result of further evidence becoming available, Sonny was released in 1992. She and Pringle met saw that they had a lot in common, naturally, and became, I suppose you could say, celebrity campaigners against the death penalty and miscarriages of justice. They married and settled in Galway, where they set up what was described as a sanctuary for victims of the justice system, particularly in the USA. Now, in Pringle's case, there's a fair bit of evidence that he was there that day the two Gardaí were shot and that he was involved in the shooting. The man in the eyes of the law is innocent, but there's evidence that he was there, whether or not, you know, he was physically there as opposed to there being a threshold of evidence to suggest he would have been in any subsequent trial found guilty. But he got lucky because, as I say, that's the system has proper safeguards there. But what is the background to his partner's subsequent wife, Sonny's case, and why was she released? Her boyfriend and co-accused, Jesse Tafiro, As I said, he was put to death on the electric chair and it was a botched execution. That was witnessed by my guest today, Ellen McGarrahan, and I think it's fair to say the site stayed with her for many years. Ellen was a young reporter at the time and subsequently worked as a private investigator. What she saw that day in the death chamber and Sonny's subsequent release prompted her to pursue the truth about the case. Were Jesse and Sonny responsible for the murders of two police officers or not? Could the state of Florida have executed an innocent man? Her quest brought her across the world, including a few days in Galway in the company of Sonny and Peter Pringle. 
The result is a book entitled Two Truths and a Lie, which is part memoir, part forensic murder mystery. And I can tell you, I didn't read it as much as eat it. It was compulsive reading. Ellen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Ellen, I suppose we'll start where you effectively came in. You were a young reporter when you were sent to witness Jesse Tafiro's execution. It was a pretty traumatic experience from how you related. It really was. I was 26 at the time. I was five years into my journalism career. I started out as an investigative reporter in New York and then moved to Florida to work at the Miami Herald, which was the state's biggest paper at the time. And I was a Capitol Bureau reporter. So my job was in part to cover the State Department of Corrections. And a very short time after I joined the newspaper bureau up there in Tallahassee, the Governor Martinez signed a death warrant for Jesse Tafaro. He had been convicted of the murder of two police officers, Trooper Philip Black and Canadian Constable Donald Irwin, on the side of a highway in 1976. So this was May 1990, and um, I, I actually did put my hand up. I volunteered to be a witness to the execution. I felt that it was an important part of my job as a reporter to bear witness to to what the state was doing with the capital punishment laws. Um, I do think that witnessing is an important role that journalists have. What happened with Jesse Tafaro, though, was out of the ordinary for executions. And um, I think I might like to just go ahead and read from my book about what I saw because... Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because talking about it is still, even all these years later... I can understand, yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit upsetting to me. What happened, basically, is that... Because I had friends in the Capitol Bureau who had witnessed executions. It's an electric chair execution, so the condemned person is sat down in the chair, strapped in, and then an electrode is strapped to their head, and um, they turn the electricity on. And sort of what generally happens is that they sit up straight when the electricity hits them, and then they sort of... And then they they slump forward, and they're dead. Um, Now I'm going to read from my book. That is not what happened to Jesse Tafaro. When the electricity hit Jesse Tafaro, the headset bolted onto his bare scalp caught fire. Flames blazed from his head, arcing bright orange with tails of dark smoke. A gigantic buzzing sound filled the chamber so deep I felt it inside the bones of my spine. In the chair, Jesse Tafaro clenched his fists as he slammed upwards and back. He's breathing, I wrote on my yellow notepad. The executioner, anonymous in the booth, turned the power off. Jesse in the chair, nodding, breathing his chest heaving, then the buzzing again, flames and smoke. His head is nodding, he's breathing. My prison-issued pencil dug into the page so hard that the paper ripped. I can see him sigh. So in the Florida, the state of Florida turned the electricity on for to Jesse Tafaro as he was in the chair three times. They had to keep turning it off because when they turned it on, flames and smoke erupted from the headset. And in between when they turned it off, we could see him nodding in the chair he was moving and he looked like he was struggling to breathe. It is horrendous. And one small detail that struck me reading, Ellen, um, was you describe how he was brought in by two officers and uh, his head had been shaved just before. I mean, just the thought of the indignity or whatever that you're shaving somebody's head officially in order to be able to kill them. I, I just thought that that really struck me. Obviously, Viewing that had a major impact on you. And skipping forward a small bit, this prompted you to go and find out what the real story was that morning in 1976 on the highway in Florida. Will you tell us 
the kind of circumstance about what actually happened, the aspect that's not in dispute, just the facts of who was there and what happened in broad terms? Yes. Um, in 19, February 1976, Jesse Tafaro and Sonny Jacobs, who was his girlfriend, and their friend named Walter Rhodes and two young children were sleeping in a car in a highway rest area just north of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And two officers, Trooper Black and Constable Irwin, were on their early morning rounds, and they came into the rest area and to wake people up and move them along, a very standard thing that officers in, in Florida do. And um, they moved a number of people on, and they, they saw the, the little, it was a small green sports car, a green Camaro, that with... Um, Jesse Tafaro and Sonny Jacobs and Walter Rhodes sleeping in it. They woke them up, and moments later, both officers were shot dead. And they lay dying on the ground as the people in the sports car moved over to stole the police car. They hijacked another car, and then they crashed into a roadblock and were arrested. Shortly after that, Walter Rhodes, who was one of the people in the car, told police that Jesse Tafaro and Sonny Jacobs had murdered the officers. He testified against them at trial. They were tried separately, and they were both sentenced to death. And then about a year after the trial, Walter Rhodes confessed that actually he had murdered the officers himself and framed Sonny and Jesse for it. And then he recanted the confession, and then he confessed again, and he recanted again, and he confessed again, and he recanted again. So that went on until 1982 when he confessed and then recanted for the last time. In 1990, Jesse Tafaro was executed. And in 1992, Sonny Jacobs' murder conviction was overturned. And she was um, by the 11th Court of Appeal in the United States, which ruled, among other things, that the prosecution had withheld a crucial piece of evidence from her defense team, which was a polygraph report that contradicted the testimony that Walter Rhodes had given at trial. And so she was, the court ordered a new trial, but because so much time had passed and um, a crucial witness had died, there were two eyewitnesses who, in addition to Walter Rhodes, who testified at the trial. And because Walter Rhodes was now completely compromised, obviously, as a, as a witness, because he had confessed and recanted and confessed and recanted, the state um, and Sonia, Sonny Jacobs entered into a plea agreement it's called a plea of convenience. It's called an Alford plea. It's a special kind of guilty plea in which she did not personally admit guilt, but she admitted that the state could prove certain facts against her at trial, including the fact that she admitted she had fired the first shot from the back of the car that morning. And also, as part of the plea, she was adjudicated guilty. So she was adjudicated guilty of two counts of murder in the second degree and a count of kidnapping. Right. And just a couple of small details. First of all, Again, as I understand it, the three individuals, uh, Rhodes, uh, Sonny Jacobs and, and Jesse Tafiro, you know, it's fair to say that they would have been engaged in low level crime or moved in those circles, for instance. And one element to that is I think there were a number of guns in the actual car where they were sleeping. Yeah. And that's actually part of the, the plea of convenience, the Alfred plea as well. Yes. What they were doing according to the plea that um, Sonny Jacobs entered into and also just a whole lot of different evidence in the case is there was a car that was basically full of guns and ammunition. Um, They were driving around and doing drug deals and um, they're sort of on their way sort of as a last 
day in this. They were going to sort of be parting company the next day um, and, and they were sleeping on the side of the highway. Right, and then coming to Sonny Jacobs, bringing you forward, and you, you laid it out very well there, but just to, to kind of try and clarify one thing, uh, she was subsequently featured in a production of play, I think it was on Broadway, I think a, a number of um, very well-known actors uh, played her part, including Brooke Shields, I think, at one stage. And the title of that play was The Exonerated. Right. And it revolved around people who'd been on death row and, and principally her case, and I know there's some others in it. And, and it gave a narrative of that. Very powerful stuff, particularly when there's such a debate about the death penalty. However, I'm just wondering, Ellen, in your experience, is it accurate to describe the outcome of Sonny Jacobs getting out of prison as being exonerated? Legally... No. I mean, her, her plea agreement very specifically says that she's adjudicated guilty, which is not an exoneration. Right. And the reason I ask that is it's kind of interesting in the context of, uh, as I might have mentioned earlier, she met Peter Pringle and they went on to be effectively campaigners, celebrity campaigners on the base they both had been on death row against the death penalty and against miscarriages of justice. But quite obviously, a, a major element to that would be that they were wrongly convicted but you're saying in a legal sense that wasn't the case with Sonny and dealt elsewhere with, with Peter Pringle how that went To know what's really happening subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film If only in theatres May 17th Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What else, in terms of Sonny's background, Ellen, what did you uh, discover about her? Um, I'm just going to jump back for a second, because I think that yeah. one, of the, one of the issues, I think, in discussing the death penalty in the United States is the idea of wrongful conviction. And I think it means different things to different people. A wrongful conviction can be, as it was in, in, as the court determined in Sonny's case, that, that an important constitutional principle had not been upheld, and that um, she her defense team was entitled to this this report that the the prosecution did not give her defense attorney. And so if you look at it that way, that's a you know, just in terms of the of the law, that is a, a very important legal principle that mm. that must be upheld. And I, very rightfully I think her murder conviction was overturned. But a wrongful conviction and factual innocence are separate issues. And I think in the in the in the in the mind of the discussion, the public discussion around the death penalty, those two things get merged. And so I think that's, that's something that I just wanted to, to clarify because I do feel that, you know, obviously following correct procedures is, is incredibly important, especially in all cases, especially in, in capital punishment cases. But a conviction that's wrong because it's unconstitutional does not mean it's a factual innocence case. So Absolutely, yeah. And we don't have the death penalty in Ireland, but in, in terms of legal principles, uh, very much so would be the same. And I, I think in the broadest sense, a kind of principle underlying it to some extent is a system whereby it's better, if necessary, that the guilty go free rather than the innocent 
get locked up or in the state case of the USA get actually executed and, and personally I, I would subscribe to such a system <laughs> because basically if I'm innocent I don't want to be locked up but I, absolutely I, I take your point it's very um, very well made so tell me wh- what you found out about Sonny well I think it's it's a really interesting interesting thing so as a I'm a private investigator as you mentioned and I have been a licensed professional investigator for more than two decades and then also I was carrying this terrible you know memory and in some cases, a re-experience of, of the execution that I had witnessed, of Jesse Tafero's execution. So when I began to read reports about his innocence, which came out when The Exonerated was, um, was performed off-Broadway, it featured Sonny Jacobs' case, and then necessarily it also featured Jesse Tafero's case because they were convicted, not in the same trial, but at the same time and with the same evidence. And it, it raised questions for me is whether I had witnessed the execution of an innocent man. And that was an, especially because of the execution itself that felt very haunting to me. So and also as a as an investigator I had the ability and decades of experience to go back in time and to try to figure out what happened at the rest area and that was my overall mission was to get back to that moment on the 20th of February 1976 just past 7 in the morning when those shots rang out like exactly what happened objectively what happened. So what I landed in very quickly, which was surprising to me. I expected that I'd just go back and look at some court files and maybe talk to a few people. But very quickly, very vividly, I ended up back in the Florida of 1976, which was right when the cocaine trade was getting going. And it wasn't quite professional yet. It was actually in this particular area of Fort Lauderdale was a bunch of high school friends who'd stumbled into this extremely high risk, extremely high yield gig and uh, Jesse Tafero, Sonny Jacobs, and Walter Rhodes were, according to the case file documents that are the public record in Florida, they were kind of on the outskirts of that. And so it was a, um, a, a violent world. It was also a world that, interestingly, involved a lot of very high-profile jewel thieves, which was not what I was expecting. And I kind of ended up... Um, like immersed in this in the 1970s Florida and um, traced through interviewing um, the friends and the former associates and also the police officers and the prosecutors who had all been involved in this case back in 1976, kind of put together a picture of the world that they had been traveling in. Right, and which and as you say, it brought you various just one briefly, just one very interesting aspect. I thought you went to Australia to meet uh, Sonny's son, the nine-year-old who'd been in the back of the car that morning. And I had, there was something poignant about that. I mean, God, the young fella, he, he grew up, his mother in prison for all his childhood and, and his mother's partner being executed. And I think he visited him in prison even. That was pretty traumatic. You also came to Galway, Ellen, to visit Sonny. What were you looking for from her? Well, my thing is kind of, it's just basically truth. Um, and I have, um, early in, in my book, I write about having been, I went to Catholic school in New York City, and I was um, sort of given the idea that somewhere here in our universe that we share, there's something called a permanent record, which is, you know, uh, that what you do and what you, who you've been in the past matters to you going forward. And um, I've always carried that with me as an investigator. I have this very firm idea that there is, that objective truth exists, that it would be possible to find something, to find to find out what actually happened. Um, it's a hard thing to do going back in time. I think uh, detective work is a form of time travel where you have to 
land back in the instant and try to figure out what happened. So when I came to Galway, I had already spoken with um, everybody that I could find in Florida who had known um, Jesse Tafaro and Sonny Jacobs back in 1976. I was able to find them and talk to them. They're friends and they're um, kind of associates. I spoke with lawyers who had represented them. Um, I spoke with police officers who had investigated the case, um, investigators who had investigated the case. But obviously I really did also want to speak with Sonny Jacobs herself to try to understand what her experience had been. I was hoping that I would be able to sit down with her and say, well, I witnessed this terrible thing, um, the Jesse Tafaro's execution, and um, I need to know what happened. So that was my basic, um, the thing I really came to Galway for was to, was to sit down and talk. Um, I want to mention, too, that in, in all of this and in, in the um, discussions I was having in Florida, I was able to meet with the widow of one of the murdered officers, uh, Trooper Philip Black. And she was absolutely lovely in talking with me. Um, she was incredibly generous with her time and very, very kind to me. And she told me when she said, she, she said that if I was trying to find out what actually happened, that I had her blessing. And that meant a huge amount to me. And I carried that with me to Galway as well. I really just simply wanted to know. I wanted to talk to Sonny Jacobs because she was there and I, I needed to know what had happened. And it was part of framing what I had seen. Like, what did I witness the execution of an innocent man or not? That was really, and that was my goal in talking with her. And did you get anywhere? Um, I think that it was an interesting, profoundly affecting conversation for me. It's hard for me to answer that question. I think I'll have to let people um, read right, the book for themselves. Yeah. There's one, and, and you read a passage, I just found this interesting, and this, if you'll excuse me, this is more a, a, a local angle and something I'd be very familiar with myself, but I'm just going to read one brief passage. You and I think your husband Peter was with you at the time, and you, you were guests of Peter Pringle and Sonny in Galway. And just this, because I saw this and this leaped out at me and I'll tell you why afterwards, but just very briefly. At dinner, Pringle breaks up a strained silence with a long story about the time all the prisoners on his wing threw their piss pots at the guards and shit dripped down the wire mesh along the stone walkways. And the time that the little Napoleonic guard made everyone watch the television channel that he wanted, not the channel the prisoners wanted. And later that same weekend, the guard was leaving a boxing match and someone pulled up alongside him in a car and blew the back of his head off with a gun. They didn't kill him though, Pringle says, looking from me to Peter with a highly instructive expression. They turned him into a vegetable for nearly a year. When the news came down, the whole prison erupted in cheers. Afterwards, the warden was walking the new chief guard along the rows and a voice from Belfast rang out, Hey John, the new chief's name was John, you're next. Pringle kicks back in his chair and laughs. Now, when I read that, uh, Ellen, that immediately I knew what was being referenced there and that was the murder of a chief officer in Port Leash Prison, Brian Stack, around 1982-83 when Pringle would have been in there and he was um, paralysed in the shooting and subsequently did die. But um, it was a bit chilling that he found the whole thing funny, the, the, the way you described it there. Yeah, it was a chilling moment and um, I felt that it was a, a warning to me. In what way? Um, just that of the, of the worlds perhaps that he 
had traveled in and had access to, and that perhaps he was somebody who wouldn't be wise to uh, get on the wrong side of. Right. And while you were there um, with your husband, did you warm to them on any level? Yes, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Sunny is a extremely, she's an extremely warm, extremely likable person, actually, now. And I felt also one of the things that happens, um, and I think this happens with um, investigations into serious matters, um, you, when you encounter somebody who knows what you know, is a shared language, and that can feel like a form of intimacy. It can feel, because I think we all in our lives certainly go through our lives knowing, you know, we, we share experiences with each other, for example, school or work or where we're from. And then when we encounter somebody who speaks that, has that same set of experiences and speaks that same language, it can feel uh, warm. It can feel um, like a connection. And, you know, I had thought about, um, at that point I had been seriously investigating I carried I carried Jesse Tafero's execution with me for 25 years at that point, almost exactly 25 years, and I had thought really a lot about it. And so, sitting with Sonny Jacobs and um, and talking with her, it it just felt like it was something that that I needed to do, and it also felt like our lives had crossed at a point that was important to me. And she was, as you say, she was one of the people who was in the car that morning. Jesse Tafiro, uh, uh, executed in 1990, was the other one. And the third person, the man whose testimony um, put the two of them on death row, uh, Walter Rhodes, he was sentenced to life, as I understand, but he got paroled. And then he went on the run on parole. He left Florida. He ended up, I think, in the northwest in the states of Washington State around there. And you tracked him down and visited him with his partner in a very remote area. That episode, I have to say, Ellen, I thought it was very brave of you, and it sounded, as, again, it was the kind of thing that could have gone anyway, particularly then subsequently, as somebody, it would appear, shopped him, and he ended up back in prison. Yeah, I, you know, when I was doing, that was in 2003, and I had just seen The Exonerated, which is a beautifully written play. It's really an emotional play it's a work of art and it says in the play very directly Walter Rhodes murdered the police officers and 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 it quotes from one of his confessions now I had known that he confessed but I had never read the confessions until I heard them in the play and I thought wow you know this this guy um I need to go and ask him did he murder Trooper Black and Constable Irwin. One of the reasons I needed to do that is that before the execution, when I was really a young reporter, I had gone and interviewed Walter Rhodes in prison. I had um, I had read in the old our old newspaper clips that he had confessed, and I thought I would go and see if he would confess again. But when I met with him in prison, when I interviewed him, he didn't. He said no. He had testified correctly, and the reason that he had recanted was because he'd been subject to. Um, abuse and pressure from other prison inmates and that, in fact, he stood by his trial testimony. So I rushed back to the office and I wrote a story that didn't mention that he had ever recanted at all. And so I felt that was a, that was a, a, a real error I had made. 
possibly an error, an error of judgment, an error of my own ego. And when I heard the confession, one of the confessions in the play, I thought, Roy, I really got this wrong and I need to go and ask him again. So I did, I found him. I had been working as a detective for seven years at that point, and so I knew how to find people, and I went and I found him in this very, very remote part of Washington State and went and talked to him. So I write about that in the book, and I have to say that, you know, good friends of mine have written to me while they're reading it, and they've said, um, now, I know you survived, but I can't, you know, I can't believe you did this. And it didn't, at the time, it just simply didn't occur to me that it was something that was risky. I thought, well... I need to know this, and I'd done a lot of different work as an investigator, talking to a lot of people in a lot of very remote parts of the United States, and I thought, well, you know, it was almost like truth was a shield, like I could show up, and because I was seeking the truth about something that was very important, which was whether an innocent man had been executed, that I somehow was going to be exempt from any harm that might happen. But I have to tell you that, um, in retrospect, would I do it again? No, I would not. Yeah, I can well believe it. I mean, just the, the the whole scene. I mean, it's really, really remote. This yeah. is a guy whom you're trying to find out whether or not he murdered in cold blood two police officers who may have sent his erstwhile friend or whatever to to his execution and, and, and equally possibly could have done so with Sonny Jacobs. He's in the middle of literally nowhere. He's on the lam from parole. He's nothing to lose. Yes, you're a brave woman to go in there. I'll say that much. For you. I don't know. Brave seems like maybe it's an overstatement. I just really, really wanted to know. I did, and yeah. I kind of thought, well, I have a legitimate question. I'm just going to go ask him, which is kind of the basis of investigation. And then, as I say, and I, I don't think it's given away too much in the book, but as I say, he, he was subsequently uh, apprehended and put back in prison, and for a long time afterwards. He blamed you. He thought you were the one who shopped him. He did, yeah. And that actually was when I realized that it had not been a wise decision and that sometimes I think we think, and this is really true, again, in discussions of the death penalty, that we sort of think everybody's, you know, like us in some way. But in fact, there are people who are living by really different rules. And that was something that I learned that I had gotten way in over my head. And I was very afraid for a very long time. Um, interestingly, really finally digging into the case and, and writing my book has alleviated that fear. I feel, I feel more confident now, but, um, but for years, just, you know, if I was alone in the house and I heard a noise, I thought, okay, well, here's somebody who thinks I sent him back to prison. Is this, is this the time that it happens? And I wasn't worried so much for myself. I was worried for my husband opening the door because he's a very kind person, my husband. And I think, you know, it just really broke my heart thinking about that. So I ended up thinking that I tried to put the case away for about eight years after that. I just thought I'm in over my head and I can't do it. And then I read about, there's a New York Times article in um, 2011 about the marriage of Sonny Jacobs and Peter Pringle that said very directly that they were both or not directly, but it really implied that they were both innocent and that it said that Walter Rhodes had confessed. And I thought, didn't mention that he'd also recanted. And I just, it just, that just finally sparked me to realize I was actually going to have to figure it out, that I couldn't just ignore it and put it away and kind of wonder because I had witnessed this terrible execution. I just, just personally really needed to know. Yeah. 
Uh, no, we're not going to spoil it to uh, reveal what the ultimate outcome was from all your investigations, which did come to a conclusion in the end. But I'm wondering the exercise that you went through, the journey you were on, Ellen, as well as everything else, including and as I understand it, subsequent to the the, the witnessing of Tafiro's execution, you were asked uh, as a witness of, of a botched execution to contribute to some research in that in the area. How has your thoughts and opinions on the death penalty, how, how have they developed over the years that you've been going through all that? Um, yeah, I think that's a wonderful question because I think when we talk about the death penalty, we do bring our own personal experiences to it very much. Um, you know, it's not like a math problem where there's, there's one answer everybody reaches or that you, you don't bring your feelings to that. But with this subject, I think we really do. So when I first decided that I would witness an execution, um, I did so on the basis that I thought it was the, you know, it was a law in the state of Florida. I was a reporter that was, in, reporters have an important job in witnessing. But I also didn't have very complicated feelings about the death penalty. I grew up in New York City at a time when it was very violent. I was the subject of a number of serious assaults when I was a child. And I kind of thought, well, you know, uh, you do something bad and karma's going to come for you. It wasn't a particularly well thought out stance, but I did think that um, there's sort of a rhyme and reason to it. And I was willing to um, understand it in that way. I walked out of the death chamber that day completely opposed to the death penalty. I mean, seriously opposed to it, having seen what I saw. Um, and then I, then I left journalism for a while. I worked in construction. I went back to journalism for a while. I became a private investigator. And I spent a short period of time working for the Habeas Corpus Resource Center in California, which was at the time a new state agency formed to defend death row inmates on their appeals. And it was working there that I became very aware of the the gravity of some of these death row crimes and the the sorrow and the grief that is involved in them, which I think I had somehow put aside. Um, and the, 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 the devastation that some of those crimes wreak. I mean, they're horrible. And then I, then I began to sort of think about more about, I mean, a, a, a friend of mine, um, daughter was tragically murdered and it was, with those experiences together that I realized that there's this sort of world of grief that's involved in the death penalty that doesn't have an easy answer. You know, it's not a, um, you can sort of pick a side and be on the side, but if you're going to look at the whole thing, then it encompasses these really profound questions of, of, of violence and justice and, and grief and sorrow and, and, um, humanity really in in all of its best and all of its worst aspects and so I am now um, after many years of thinking and and working working on death row cases writing this book thinking a lot about Jesse Tafaro's case um, I am personally deeply opposed to it but with an understanding that there's this in this world of sorrow that needs to be accommodated somehow I don't know. The way that we discuss it now doesn't seem to do that. You sort of, you know, the, it just doesn't. It just doesn't have the complexity that I think we really need to try to to move past it in a way that that does feel um, whole. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I can see exactly what you mean. Uh, like an awful lot of issues in the public realm at the moment, uh, the nuance and the complexities, um, unfortunately, there isn't much concentration on them. Um, Ellen, finally, since you wrote the book, or, or even in the years prior to that, after your visit to Galway and Sonny Jacobs, did she ever get in touch with you? I have not heard from her. And have you heard any feedback about whether she's read your book or any reaction to it? I don't know. Right. It's um, it's a fascinating story. It's a, it's a tragic story. Uh, as I said, a botched execution is, is a horrific thing. And I think also you mentioned Trooper Black's widow. Uh, she certainly comes across as, as a person of great dignity. And the point you're making about the pain that surrounds some of these crimes, I, I, I think that, uh, that came across in her person too. She is lovely. I wanted to jump in and said I did hear from her, which meant a lot to me. She sent me a message after reading the book that I will always treasure. And so I think that was one of the things about, um, I think that that truth actually really does have a place in justice and that, um, that, that sometimes just being able to, to share the story really matters as well. That's very interesting indeed, yeah. And I suppose, as you say, it brings some comfort to your quest that, um, that a bereaved person like that actually uh, gets in touch with you about it. Ellen... Thanks very much for talking to us today. The book is Two Truths and a Lie by Ellen McGarrahan and it's published by Random House. Thank you, Ellen. And um, we might come across you another guy sometime in the future. Thank you so much. As always, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Staying by the wall and we'll see you again next week. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.